words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Amen. In the pew sheet I've made some comments about our first reading. Um, One of the strange things we do here is we have the psalm first and then the first reading. But in fact the psalm should come after the first reading because it's a response to that uh, first reading. So if you have a look at the psalms, they're actually picked not because of any uh, magic formula they have, but simply because they relate to that first reading and they allow us to respond to it. So one day maybe we'll flick it back around, but we just have to work out how to do that with the readers. So for now we'll just do our odd thing. And I've made some comments about uh, the ten words as they're called in the pew sheet and how we might read them differently from just being a legalistic code. But today what I really want to talk about is our gospel reading, which kind of flows on from last week's gospel reading. It's a and last week's gospel reading, if you remember, was all about the Jerusalem leadership's question to Jesus, which was, by what authority do you do these things? Or as I suggested last week, whose yoke are you teaching? Because we really can't recognise it. Now that question, had if it gets too cold, we can turn the heaters back on, but the bearings are going on that heater and it was just noisy. So, But if you're cold, just signal, signal and I'm sure Maureen will put it back on. Uh, This question came after Jesus had returned for the last time to Jerusalem. So we are now into the kind of Holy Week readings, except it's not Holy Week for us. So, uh, and we kind of skipped that reading. We just kind of moved over Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and into what happens in that final week. And the first thing that Jesus did is that he went to the temple and expelled all the dealers. And then having caused a bit of a fracas, He went off to Bethany for the night, and uh, the next morning he comes back, and Matthew tells us because he was hungry, he went to a fig tree, but the fig tree had no fruit, so he cursed it and said, because you have no fruit, you will yield no more fruit, and the fig tree promptly died. Now, that's not just an interesting side story that Matthew put in there, it's a clue to what all of this is about. It kind of gives you a waves a flag. So just hang on to that little fig tree. And then Jesus goes back into the temple, and when he goes into the temple, the chief priests and the elders, the Jerusalem leadership, ask him that question, by whose authority do you do these things? So Jesus, knowing that they're a little cheesed off, first of all asks them a question, which is one of his favourite tricks, isn't it? It's really hard to get a straight answer out of Jesus. He either asks a question or tells a story, and in this case, he does both. So the question he asks is, where did John's baptism come from? Heaven or man? And the chief priests are left in a little bit of a quandary. Matthew tells us they're not really sure how to answer that, so they choose not to answer. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer your question. But then he does kind of answer it because he tells the story of the two sons 
one of whom says to his father, no, I'm not going to go and work in the vineyard, but then decides maybe he will. And the other one who says, of course I'll go and work in the vineyard, but then decides that he's too busy and doesn't. Jesus goes on and tells this week's parable, so that just kind of moves from last week into this week, and then next week is the parable of the wedding feast. And all of that is in response to the question, by what authority do you do these things? So the parable of the wicked tenants. There are a number of layers to the story. It's like an onion, or if you're a Shrek follower, and you're a fan of donkey, it's like a parfait. And all these allies influence how the chief priests and the elders and Matthew's community hear the story. Now Jesus has a habit of telling people that suck people in, kind of gets them feeling comfortable. They think they know where the story's going. They think they have it under control. And he flips it right at the end. And this is one of those stories. So, what are the layers that suck the people in? Well, the first thing to note is that Jesus here is talking primarily to chief priests and elders, the Jerusalem leadership. And they are landowners. They own land all across Judea and Galilee. They are absentee landowners. This is a story about them. And it's no accident that in this story, the landowners are good. They're the good people, not those nasty, horrible tenants. Now, the tenants are the crowd, actually. A lot of the crowd would have been tenants who had come into Jerusalem. And the tenants would have once been the landowners. But over the last 50 years, because of Roman taxes and temple taxes and the high price of food and the fact that they weren't getting enough from their produce, nearly all those small landowners had to sell their land to the Jerusalem leadership and other absentee landlords. And so the tenants hated the Jerusalem leadership. The chief priests and the elders were not held in high respect outside of Jerusalem and even within Jerusalem. They weren't flavour of the month. So all of that is at play in the story. And Jesus appeals to their prejudices, just as today often politicians and others appeal to our prejudices when they say, oh, those nasty beneficiaries, they're so lazy. We have to put all these things into place so that they'll go out there and get jobs without ever actually telling us that there are no jobs for them to get if they do go out there and try to get them. Or there's no real poverty in New Zealand. The issue is that people just misspend their money on cigarettes and alcohol. And even the best people keep reiterating those kind of lines without ever addressing the fact that a vast number of New Zealanders simply do not earn enough money to make ends meet. So it's that same kind of let's appeal to the prejudice. And so Jesus does an excellent job of doing that. And so he goes on to tell the story. 
And the story is an interesting story. It would have kind of conjured up all kinds of reactions out of them. They would have, for example, wondered why the landowners were so generous. Why did they wait so long? Sending two lots of slaves? That's a ridiculous move. And, and it also appealed to all the prejudices, all the anger of the, of the tenants who were listening as well. Because they resented the fact that they'd lost their land. They longed for their land to be returned. But they, and they longed to be able to do that kind of thing, to not pay and to kill off the slaves and to kind of take a stand. But they knew that if they tried something like that, that if they had not paid what it owed, the landowners would hire people to violently evict them and to put in new tenants. They knew that because they'd seen it happen. So all of this gives an edge at the end of the story to the reply offered to Jesus by the chief priests and the elders. His question about, so what do you think happens to those tenants? And the answer is, it's an easy answer. These people have acted dishonorably. They have acted shamefully. They have not fulfilled their honour-bound commitments. They have brought shame on their families by not honouring those commitments. And we know how to deal with such people. And they have brought on more shame in killing the son. There can only be one response. These people deserve a violent end. Now the end, they suggest, is an interesting end because the other Gospel writer who tells the story is Mark. And he has the tenants killed in the vineyard and then taken out. But Matthew flips that. They are taken out of the vineyard and killed outside of it, which is exactly what happens to Jesus. He is taken out of Jerusalem and crucified on the hill. For Matthew, I'm sure Mark was thinking about Jesus, but Matthew makes it really clear. This story is about Jesus. So that's the first layer. A layer where it all kind of mixes in with what's happening in, this, in, in their society in the first place. But there's two other layers as well. The story using the vineyard would have rung bells for nearly everyone who listened. And they would have heard Isaiah 5. A well-known story about a vineyard that was planted and cared for. But in this case it produced bad fruit. Unlike the vineyard in Jesus' story, which produced good fruit. And those who are looking after it are bad. And the difference then between Isaiah 5 and Jesus' story is that, uh, well, that's the difference, but the similarities are very strong. In Isaiah 5, the vineyard was an allusion to the house of Israel and to Judah in particular. And it was a story by which God played... Can, uh, declares condemnation, condemnation on the house of Israel and Judah in particular for failing to bear fruit, good fruit, for failing to be a blessing as God intended. Remember that victory? And then the third layer that's operated, uh, that operates in the story is that the vineyard was a common way of talking about Israel's history. Israel was the vineyard, same as Isaiah 5. And the tenants, in this case, 
were the imperial regimes that kept occupying it. Egypt, Babylon, Persia, the Greeks, and now the Romans. So that's another layer that people would have been hearing in the story. It has a revolutionary edge. So Jesus gets to the end of the story and he asks the chief priests and elders what should happen. And given all those layers, I wondered what they were hearing at this point. And I wondered how, I wonder how worried they were. They knew how Jesus operated. But the situation was one that they knew well, despite the troubling revolutionary illusions. They were probably puzzled by both the behaviour of the tenants and the generosity of the landowner. But the question just seems so straightforward, doesn't it? What should happen to these tenants? Where's the hook? They know there's a hook in here somewhere, but they can't see it. This is a pretty straightforward question. It's a pretty straightforward answer. The tenants need to be punished. So they answer. The tenants should be taken out of the vineyard. They should be executed and new tenants put in place. Well, then Jesus lives up to his reputation and he flips the story over. And he says, don't you know your scriptures? Have you never read? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is wonderful to see. Out of nowhere... Jesus brings in Psalm 118, verses 22 to 23, and he uses that psalm to suggest that he, Jesus, is the cornerstone that is being rejected, and that this cornerstone will be their undoing, and that they, the landowners, are actually the tenants in the story. They didn't see that one coming. Because you yield no fruit. All will be taken away from you and given to those who will. Remember that fig tree? There it is again. Now for the chief priests and the elders, including the Pharisees, we're told that this is the end of the line for them. From then on, they determinedly plot to kill Jesus. And we know that within a few days they have succeeded in that plan. At one level, the story can leave us feeling pretty smart because, well, we're on the winner's side and we know what the story means and we know that we're not the ones which tripped over on this cornerstone and all is good for us. It's so much easier on the side of the, the events when you know the stories. It's so much easier when you can see what is coming. But there should be a little hint of warning in here for us as well. In fact, when I read this, it was like the robot from Lost in Space was nearby calling out, Danger, 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 Will Robinson, danger. Because Jesus is not just talking to the chief priests and the elders. These stories are not just historical stories written to keep us better informed about what Jesus did. 
They were also stories written for the church communities that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John came out of, and they are written for us. And so when Jesus is talking to the chief priests and elders, he is also talking to Matthew's community, and he is also talking to us. This is a warning to us as much as it is to those chief priests and elders. So I wonder, where do we fit in this story? And I wonder what proper care of the vineyard would look like for us. And I wonder what we as tenant farmers are to give back to the one who owns all the land. And I wonder most of all, are we good fruit? So I invite us to spend a moment or two, either in silence or talking to your neighbour, I'll leave it up to you, to think about what this story says to us here at St George's at this time.